Scientists are astounded at some of the fine-tuning that they find in the early, early universe. What are some of these evidences that today's scientific discoveries affirm? And what do they say about the existence of God? This is Evidence and Answers with scholar, speaker, author, and apologist, Pat Zukerin. I'm Kevin Harris, and today is a special Evidence and Answers. Pat is in Israel, so I recently had an opportunity to talk with Dr. Robin Collins, who is an expert in some of this evidence that we're finding in the early, early universe that indicates fine-tuning or intelligent design. Dr. Collins got a PhD from the University of Notre Dame. He got a PhD as well at the University of Texas at Austin in physics, and he did more work in mathematics, physics, and philosophy at Washington State University. He is currently professor of philosophy at Messiah College in Pennsylvania. More information and this entire series is at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Dr. Collins, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, You're welcome, Kevin. I really am fascinated by this design uh, argument and some of the design arguments that are coming out today. And I think that people who aren't even familiar with uh, a whole lot of science and cosmology are are finding these, uh, these arguments very compelling and interesting as well. But what do we mean by fine tuning? Fine-tuning of the cosmos, what we mean by that is both the laws of nature and what is called the constants of physics and the initial conditions of the universe. Basically, the the fundamental structure of the universe is sort of balanced on a razor's edge, if you will, for um, intelligent life to occur like ourselves. So if things were slightly different, I mean, just minute amounts... um, we wouldn't be here or um, any sort of life like ourselves. What is one of your favorite examples? Uh, maybe you have a favorite or one or two examples of this fine-tuning uh, at the beginning of the universe. Well, I break it up into several different categories. Um, there's, first of all, the laws of nature, and then there's the constants of physics, That's and that gets to be more abstract, and then there's the initial conditions of the universe. So maybe I should start with the laws of nature. The laws of nature are sort of, if you think in terms of um, a computer program, they're the rules by which the universe operates. So if I go to the top of a building and I drop a rock, the rock falls. What rule tells it to do that? Well, it's the law of gravity. Another example is in the nucleus of an atom. The nucleus of atoms are composed of protons and neutrons. One law, the electromagnetic law of electromagnetic force, tells the protons, which have the same charge, to repel each other. Another law, the law regarding the strong nuclear force, tells the neutrons and protons to attract each other, and that's what holds the nucleus together. And you can give many, many examples of laws like this. Now, if that was changed just slightly, then the protons and the neutrons would uh, fall into the nucleus and we wouldn't have atoms? No, if, if, if like you didn't have the strong nuclear force, for instance, then uh-huh. the protons would repel each other, and there'd be no, no glue to hold the nucleus together. Uh. So there wouldn't be any atoms except hydrogen, which only has a single proton. Or if you didn't have gravity, um, then you couldn't have planets like the Earth or um, stars, which are energy sources for life, because okay. like a star is very, very hot, so the gas tends to expand. The gravity keeps it together. In fact, if you go back to the Big Bang, um, 
even if there was a Big Bang, all the matter would just simply spread out and never um, um, come together to form um, galaxies or stars or things like that. So there wouldn't be a possibility of life, you would just, um, which means there wouldn't be a co- possibility of any sort of complexity. Embodied life requires self-reproducing complexity, and that wouldn't exist. Okay. So that had, you know, you just had gas spread out throughout the universe, for instance. So that's one category, and you mentioned another category? Another category is what they call the constants of physics. Those are, you know, if, if you're anybody who's familiar with the computer program and you know you have the rules, but then you have numbers you have to input into the um, computer program. Um, and um, those are what's the um, same sort of thing in the universe. The universe, you have the laws of physics, but you have certain fundamental, what they call constants, which um, determine such things as the strength of gravity or the strength of the strong nuclear force. Another one is the cosmological constant, which goes into determining how um, rapidly the universe is expanding. So, for instance, let's look at the case of gravity. If, and, and here you have to think of in terms of a scale to get a, an idea. When we talk about fine-tuning in the case of the constants, it's, it's a relative measure. It's like a radio station on a radio dial. So if your station, the word, 107 point, what is it, 107.3 yeah, FM? Yeah, 100.7. If it's fine-tuned, that means you only could get the word in on a very, very small part of the dial relative to the entire length of the dial. So if you look at the forces of nature, they span just an incredible range, um, a range of 10,000 billion, billion, um, billion, billion, um, when, when what um, physicists call scientific notation, that's one followed by 40 zeros or 10 to the 40th, so... The gravity, um, there's a standard measure for the strength of these forces. It's approximately equivalent to the strength of the forces between um, two protons, let's say, in a nucleus. Gravity is the weakest of those, and the strong nuclear force is the strongest. So if you want to imagine a scale, if we put the strength of those forces on a scale, the strong and the scale was like the radio dial extended all the way across the universe... 15 billion light years, that's, um, for those who don't know what a light year is, that's how far light travels in a year. Light travels 186,000 miles a second. There's 86,000, approximately 86,000 seconds in a day. There's 365 days in a year. So you can imagine how far across the visible universe um, that would be. If we had a dial stretching across the visible universe, the strong nuclear force would be all the way across on the other side, and gravity would be in the first trillionth of an inch. If gravity wasn't in the first thousandth of an inch, if it was any stronger than being in the first thousandth of an inch, that would be um, like about a billionfold of what it is now. Any sort of complex life like ourselves would be crushed. There wouldn't be a planet that you could like ours, if you increase gravity a billionfold, we would be crushed. The only way you could get any sort of creatures with brains would be on a planet about um, 100 feet in diameter, but that planet couldn't sustain, wouldn't have enough um, area to sustain life like ourselves. So we just simply in that universe couldn't get um, complex embodied beings like ourselves. Um, Other examples are if you decrease the strength of the strong nuclear force, um, remember it's acting against the repulsion of the protons in the nucleus. 
because the protons are positively charged. They're trying to repel each other. If you decreased it by very much, the nuclei would come apart, and you'd just be left with a universe with hydrogen and nothing more. And you can't, unlike what you see on Star Trek, you can't get complex, intelligent life in a hydrogen gas cloud. Not enough stable complexity. These are incredible numbers. How do, you, how do we get these numbers without blowing up the calculator? Well, we have computers today, so we can... So these supercomputers can uh, generate all these numbers. One of the most, I should mention one of the most, but it's also very esoteric, one of the most um, discussed cases actually of fine-tuning in cosmology for reasons largely independent of, of this particular issue is what's called the cosmological constant. And um, that's a term, just a number. It's a number in um, Einstein's... Um, equation, which Albert Einstein had a theory of gravity called general relativity, which um, has an equation that tells, that determines the, how much um, matter will curve space-time, in which case how much matter basically will, how matter causes a force of gravity. And that constant um, ends up determining the expansion rate of space. And in order for life to occur, it would have to be um, fine-tuned to one part in 10 to the 120th power, and 10 to the 120th power is 1 followed by 120 zeros, just an incredibly small number. If you had a whole universe full of coins, it'd be more likely for you to, and there was only one that was a gold coin, if you randomly tried to, you know, went to pick those coins, it'd be more likely for you to get that gold coin than it would be for just random chance cosmological constant to fall into that little <laughs> little um, region it would need to fall in for life to occur. Amazing. Uh, are we just now finding all this out, Dr. Collins, or have we known about it for a while? Um, we're really just now finding it all out. I mean, it, it depends on what you mean by a while. Um, 1957 was the, um, really the first... Um, well, that's relatively recent. Yeah, relatively recent. Um, William Paley, who um, was 1802, contemplated such things and gave some examples, but the science wasn't very advanced at that time. He wrote a book called Natural Theology, which was um, very important, a book at the time trying to establish um, argument from design for the existence of God. Now, how are these some of these newer arguments for design different than... William Paley, he came up with a watch uh, analogy and, and some things like that. I, I guess there are some similarities. How are these even better arguments? Well, here's how they're better. The, in the case of William, here's the main way they're better. In the case of William Paley, he, his main examples, remember the science wasn't very advanced at the time, but they're, they're, um, they knew a fair amount about anatomy. I don't know, I forgot how long it was, but a couple hundred years they were cutting things open, studying organs and things like that. So his examples were from the biological realm, primary examples that, that were well-known at the time, like the structure of a heart or the structure of an eye. So he compared their structure, their intri- intricately put together to accomplish some seemingly apparent purpose, like the eye to see or the heart to pump blood. He compared that to a watch or a clock. A clock is intricately put together, to tell time. And he said, well, if you found a watch on a beach, no one would say that was simply a result of chance. Um, and a contemporary analogy I use is if you went to Mars 
and they, the astronauts landed on Mars, and they walked around, and they found a big Ben clock, and they turned it, and the alarm went off. The, um, the papers, the next day's papers would read, proof of intelligent life found in the, you know, on Mars, or the Russians got there before us. Yeah. They would not say it just happened by chance, that there, there was um, a volcanic eruption and it precipitated out to form this clock. So Paley used um, that sort of analogy, which was very compelling to the people at the time. The problem that has run into, at least for many people, is um, evolution. In um, 1858, with um, Darwin's theory, many people eventually at least found Darwin's theory a plausible alternative explanation of the apparent design of um, plants and animals. So it kind of took the wind out of the... Paley sales, it, it seems. It took a wind out of that argument. So Richard Dawkins, you know, the, the famous atheist, the book The Blind Watchmaker, right? The evolutionary process is a blind watchmaker, not intelligent, that produces these things. He said before Darwin it was impossible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. So Darwin, in many people's minds, eliminated that um, a sort of apparent design. Now, of course, the contemporary intelligent design movement is challenging that, at a different um, biochemical level, but nonetheless, it, it had that impact. The universe as a whole, though, can't be explained by evolution. Even for evolution to occur, there has to be, for example, atoms. You, know, you, you can't have uh, evolution of life forms if all there is is hydrogen gas or isn't any stars. So all these cases of fine-tuning I'm talking about are required in order to even have evolution. So it's not going to explain um, this. That is very key. I mean, no fine-tuning of these uh, aspects, these constants, and, and so forth, and then no evolution, no nothing. Right, you know? no evolution, no nothing. So evolution itself requires um, a universe that is set just right um, in order to even be possible. Well, what are some of the objections uh, to this, Dr. Collins? I, um, I could throw a couple out uh, to you uh, just to kind of get you started. One uh, obvious one is that uh, this isn't the only universe, that there are multiple universes out there, and we just happen to be in one that uh, uh, has all the features for life. Right. Now, the, now here we have to take um, um, discuss two different kinds of multiple universe hypotheses. The most viable and most widely discussed now is what I call a universe generator version. Um, this is the idea that there's some physical process that generates the universes, and every time it generates a universe, it um, sets the constants um, of physics, the ones I talked about, like the strength of gravity or the strong nuclear force or other constants, the cosmological constant at random. So if you produce enough universes, let's say, looking at the cosmological constant, if you produce more than 10 to the 120th power, one followed by 120 zeros, eventually you're going to get one with just the right value of the cosmological constant for life. Now, the most viable version of that, by far the most discussed version, is one um, coming out of um, what's known as inflationary cosmology. It's a new explanation for the Big Bang, um, which is um, the accepted theory among cosmologists. Um, it's an explanation for the origin um, or a pre-Big Bang, something before the Big Bang, what gave rise to particular features of the Big Bang, how it occurred, um, and superstring theory. And superstring theory is the... Um, um, it doesn't have any experimental evidence in favor of right now, but it's, being pers it's the most hotly pursued 
physical theory that tries to unite general relativity with quantum mechanics. And it postulates that the fundamental particles, everything we see about the universe, like protons and neutrons, the quarks that compose them, electrons, everything is ultimately a result of these vibrations, um, or actually quantum vibrations of these strings of energy. And then there's a brain theory now with actually surfaces of energy that are um, vibrating. When you combine those two together, at least it's possible to get a scenario in which um, many universes are generated. So let me just say a couple words about that. It's um, an imaginary scenario. They're in inflationary cosmology. You can imagine um, they postulate what they call an impliton field, and that can, you can think of that as like an, an ocean. And the impliton field causes this, um, this uh, the ocean is, um, the impliton field's an ocean, and it's pre-space, it's space before the Big Bang, and the space, Infliton field causes it to expand at an enormously rapid rate. And then these quantum processes ca- cause these universes to bubble out. So it's like an ocean full of soap with universes like bubbles coming out. And every time the bubbles come out, the string theory, um, the way it works, at least allows for the possibility that each of the bubbles have different um, values of the constants. So that's the big, um, that's the most, um, one most widely discussed and advocated of those who are putting forward this hypothesis. So Does that su- make sense? Yeah, so superstring, is, uh, is, that, is that more popular than the inflationary cosmology? No, oh, well, they're probably equally popular. The inflationary is one that is to explain the um, certain features of the um, Big Bang and the universe, and the string theory is trying to unite um, general relativity and quantum mechanics and explain some of the um, basic structure of matter. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, well, you give a pretty good illustration, you give a very good illustration, in fact, uh, of, uh, of a bread machine. Okay, and that's as a theistic response to this. So how would, you know, how does one who believes in the argument from design, um, how does one respond to this scenario? And I claim it um, doesn't solve the problem of design, it doesn't, um, but it just transfers it up to another level. And I give the example of a bread machine. Um, my claim is is that the universe generator, the physical process that generates the universe, would itself have to be intricately structured. And, and Michael Behe's, and I'm, I'm an intelligent design advocate, um, in his terminology, it would have to be. Um, irreducibly complex. It has to have all the right laws and components and even initial ingredients in order to produce a single life-sustaining universe. And I think if you actually look at the structure of um, what they have to hypothesize to get this to work, you'll see that if one law were missing, um, the whole thing wouldn't work. So I compare it to a bread machine. It's just um, a bread machine produces loaves of bread the universe generator produces universes. Well, if we look at the bread machine, we see um, it has to be intricately structured and have just the right ingredients in order to produce one decent, life-sustaining loaf of bread. For instance, if um, if I um, forget, as I have in the past, I own a defunct bread machine. Um, as I have in the past, I forget to put yeast in as one of the ingredients in. Um, what comes out is hockey pucks. 
Yeah. Um, loaves of bread that never puff up, they're just hard, and they're not very life-sustaining, at least for me. <laughs> um, and it's defunct now. Why? Because one, of the pro- one element of it has to have all the right elements to produce the loaf of bread. One of the elements is not working. So you see how it's, it's, it's quite complex. So even if there is this physical process that generates this, these universes, it itself would um, seemingly have to be designed to do its job. So it's, um, it doesn't really avoid uh, argument from design, I claim. Another argument that we sometimes hear against design is that we tend to impose design on it. Um, people say uh, the mud puddle analogy. Look how perfectly the water fits in that mud puddle. Uh, that mud puddle must have been designed in that shape. Or look how good the rivers uh, border the states in America. Right, right. Uh, so uh, we we do it we do it after we do it after the fact is the yeah, claim. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's going on here because, but it really, the, if you boil the argument down, it's basically saying it's very very surprising, very unlikely, if you will, for a universe to be set just right for um, life to occur, just by chance, okay? So um, if you look at, um, and, you can, and you can get to that conclusion just by doing physical calculations. So it's not us imposing those calculations. You just calculate, you know, if you change the cosmological constant, you can just make these calculations, then the universe would have expanded way too rapidly, or stars or galaxies or any of that stuff to form, planets to form, and so there wouldn't be any embodied life. So first of all, those calculations are perfectly objective. Then the second component of the argument is just simply saying under a design, like a a hypothesis that God exists, it's not surprising. And then as I do it in one of my papers, I invoke a rule of inference, um, which comes out of... um, Bayesian confirmation theory, and that's the other way, and I just mentioned that the side comment, your question earlier, is where we're better off than we were paley before. Um, this whole um, confirmation theory, how one hypothesis is confirmed over another by the evidence, that's really been developed in this last, um, the last 20th century, so it wasn't really available to Paley at the time. Using this confirmation theory, which um, says that if one hypo- uh, if like under the chance hypothesis something's very unlikely, but under let's say the theistic hypothesis it's not unlikely, then you can conclude that the evidence, in this case of fine tuning, the data of fine tuning offers evidence for theism, very strong evidence over the chance hypothesis. And let me give you an illustration to see how this works. So. Let's suppose I go up to the mountains. I, I'm from Washington State, and it's the Cascade Mountains there. And so let's suppose I went up to the mountains, and um, my brother was up there before me, let's say a week before me, and I am walk up to one of the cliffs, and there below the cliffs, the rocks are neatly laid out, and they form what seemed to be this statement that says, Welcome to the mountains, Robin Collins. <laughs> and I have one of my philosopher friends with me, and my philosopher friend just says, you know, well, you're just imposing design on that. And I say, <laughs> no, I say, no, here's the argument. If it was just by chance this happened, let's say the rocks fell off the cliff, it'd be very unlikely for them to form this pattern. You could actually do a calculation of the unlikelihood. But if my brother was up here, it wouldn't be unlikely at all. 
because he could have arranged it. So I conclude that, therefore, it strongly supports the brother hypothesis over the chance hypothesis. And we use this kind of reasoning all the time if you find fingerprints on a gun. You know, it's possible they just by chance match the defendant. But we think it counts as strong evidence that the defendant is guilty if there's a really good match because it's very unlikely on the chance hypothesis it would just be a chance match, but not unlikely if the defendant used the murder weapon. We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. There's a new feature on our website called iShows, where you can download each individual show for just $2.50 on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Just like you download a song on iTunes, these are iShows that you can download each individual show you want, and we got some of the top scholars on there. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. This has been Kevin Harris. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin. God bless and thanks so much for listening.